0: Hey guys, how's it going? This is sound advice from Ballard's Accountants. Hi guys, my name's Ben Orman. I'm a partner here at Ballard's and joining me is my business development partner, Steve Jones. We're here today to talk to Gina Gardner, who's a superstar corporate tax manager, and we're going to be talking about research and development tax credits. Firstly, Gina, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your career and how you found yourself doing corporate tax here at Ballard's?
1: Yeah, no problem. So I, I started my accountancy training back in 2014. I was I was straight from sixth form and started my AAT studies back then. Um, I trained for a couple of years in accounts and then I had a secondment into corporate tax and really have just never looked back from that point. But I've built a specialism over the years, so around seven years now I've been working on R&D tax relief as a specialism and in general corporate tax work really so.
2: And Gina you, you've obviously done a really good job of it I know that you've, you've won a fair few sort of accolades over the past couple of years for your work in tax haven't you?
1: Yeah so I've been um, been lucky enough to be awarded a number of awards for the work I've been doing so I was British Rising Star of the Year in 2018 and I've had a couple of um, awards through the AAT Professional Members Awards as well and yeah just been re- lucky enough to to be uh to be specialising in the area and, and working with clients that have benefited from from the work that I do. Mm.
2: I saw a stat the other day that between yourself and the and the R and D team at Ballards, hadn't you made claims to the value of about fifty million pounds over the past couple of years for clients?
1: Yeah, that's about right. I mean that those are the ones that have been tracked, so I suspect it probably is slightly understated, but it's yeah, it's been really fruitful and it's really helped a lot of clients to to reinvest awesome. in their businesses.
0: Yeah, uh, brilliant. Cool. And R and D is a really interesting one, right at the moment. There's a lot of changes in the legislation and HMRC are getting a bit more hot on claims, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit firstly about R and D, what it means? Give imagine I'm an idiot. But I don't know it's not too difficult. And just say what research and development is, how do you get tax credits, and what sort of claims have you seen going in over the years?
1: Yeah, no worries. So um, in terms of the relief itself, it's been around since 2000. Um, so, yeah, we're into 23 years now. So um, there's still a lot of businesses that don't realise that they, they could be qualifying. So the government have essentially put it in place to incentivise businesses to innovate. So that doesn't always mean that you have to be sort of in a laboratory sense, you know, this sort of high or scientific white coat style work that people would associate with R&D normally. What what there does need to be is that there needs to be some technological or scientific uncertainties, and they need to be seeking to advance that. So whether they actually do advance it doesn't necessarily matter. It's just the efforts to try and advance those really that that matters. In terms of the relief itself, what the government allow is that if you're under the SME scheme, then they allow an additional deduction for the costs that they've that they've invested for the work that they've been doing so that is basically a reduction to their profit or potentially in the form of a tax credit if they're loss making and it's slightly different if they're a large company there's different rates that are applied and different restrictions but again it's additional relief over and above what the the investment would normally involve basically.
2: And Gina it's something interesting you can you can fail on a project and still claim can't you?
1: Yeah that's correct yeah so it doesn't actually have to be successful and in fact if they actually fail it does actually provide better evidence that there are those technical um, uncertainties or scientific uncertainties so it actually kind of goes in their favour it's probably bad for business but good for an R&D claim.
2: What's the sort of ratio sorry I'm just interested in this sort of you know failing projects what's the ratio that you see and that you work on roughly of projects that are successful versus claims for those that are unsuccessful projects?
1: an interesting question actually I don't I don't necessarily see that many really that, that do fail I think yeah I think there's a lot that, that do end up either succeeding to an extent so that sometimes they don't always achieve exactly what they've set out to do because of how things have evolved over the time but yeah certainly I've seen ones that have just outright failed and, and that in itself just provides evidence that that, that solution's not out there and, and that nobody else has been able to achieve that.
0: I guess uh, my question is, why has it been so popular? Is it is it because it's very broad or is it very generous or a bit of both? You see a lot of, how shall we say, boutique firms, there selling R&D, tax credit advice. Why are they doing so well or historically, why have they done so well?
1: So I think there's been, yeah, I think it's it's to do with the fact that it is quite broad. So, you know, like I said, it's not just this sort of white coat science lab type work that can qualify I do think there's been an element of abuse there, which is hence why there's so much more scrutiny happening at the moment, and unfortunately, that's actually making it worse for those that are genuinely claiming but I think with the broad range of of legislation that it can apply to, and it's meant that everyone sort of jumped onto it and is very generous is basically you're getting something back for just doing what you would normally be doing and you're getting extra relief on top of the investment that you've already made so
2: It's super generous as well, isn't it? Comparatively, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so I think, yeah, looking historically, it's quite generous. So you're looking at 130% uplift on the cost that you've already paid out. Going forward, that is reducing, and I think that's been led due to these fraudulent claims. So they are looking to reduce that to 86%. So that is penalising really those that are genuinely innovative, but as a way of trying to tackle the fraud. Mm
2: -hmm. Just briefly, how does it, you mentioned a couple of times abuse and what classes as, as fraudulent. There's obviously some something you're alluding to it being quite rife expand on it what what's get what's you know what what's what's happening with that
1: yeah so i think there's a number of boutique firms out there that that basically are being seen to be pushing this too far there's ones that are taking advantage because a, a lot of the time the structure is that it's a contingent fee basis and it's percentage driven so They're driven by how much they can get back for that client. And we have seen instances where they just genuinely are not a claimable company. So a few, you know, a few months back, I was sort of sat on a call with, unfortunately, sort of five businesses that have been subject to a scam, essentially. So they've had a knock on effect to each other because they've all recommended each other to a service. And the issue is that some of these claims have been processed, so it's very difficult for them to sit there and not recommend them because it's actually gone through. But there'll be instances where you know claims are being made with non-qualifying costs, so things that just blatantly aren't within the, the criteria, And then also just for projects that just don't qualify. Um, And the issue is that the clients is very tempting because other other clients have received money from these people. Um, And I think even up to yesterday, I had another email where an advisor sat down and just taken a set of accounts and then sent them an email back and said, oh, I can get you one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. And for them to be able to sit there and just say that from one set of accounts with no discussion about the projects and no, you know, no actual detail to those numbers. That makes it very difficult for for us to necessarily compete then, because it's you know it sounds fantastic. In reality, they're not entitled to all of that, and they might be entitled to something. But yeah, there's just these types mm-hmm. of entities.
2: So. Sure. So hold on so, so so hold on people just it sounds like they just blatantly don't qualify and there are and just caveat this by saying obviously not you know not everybody is sort of wild west scam artists out there but what i hear you saying and what i'm also aware of is is that there you know that there has been a bit of an issue with you know with some businesses offering to make claims on r&d for for clients how come these are going through hmrc if they just blatantly don't if they don't qualify
1: so i think in the past there's not been the resource to be looking at the claims and so that's where these sort of new compliance checks are rolling out now. So they are very blanket and sort of generic. So they are picking on a lot more and get they've got a lot more resource to do this now. So I think it has just been a case of taking advantage of the lack of resource because it could be, you know, it just gets selected and it's 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 declined. But at the same time, if they haven't got the resource, it's likely... they they may have just been processed without even looking at them, which is unfortunate for those that try really hard to actually make sure that they're submitting a quality claim.
0: So it sounds like there's kind of a few bad apples ruining the harvest, as it were, here. And and, um, I'm well aware myself that HMRC have invested heavily in R&D compliance. They talk about it over the previous budgets and statements, spring and autumn statements, and have seen these compliance checks myself. So what are these checks like that you've seen?
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, a lot of them appear are appearing generic. They're very blanket approach, which... It becomes very difficult for a client to know exactly how to, to approach that really. I think that HMRC have the right intentions with it and that they are trying to tackle those that, that are genuinely taking this too far or or doing it fraudulently but at the same time I think they are then penalising those that are genuinely innovative and essentially issuing a blanket letter that could apply to anybody and the issue with that is that number one it looks really scary to a client so the length of it is, is quite long, the sort of five to six pages of questions. There's there's mentions of penalties within it, which is formal process for HMRC. But from a client's perspective, that can look scary, especially when they've engaged with an advisor to do this on their behalf. So we're seeing that people are, yeah, they're, they're scared of these really that are landed. But when you actually get down to it, there's quite a lot of the questions that are irrelevant to their individual case. And I think in some cases, I've spoken to other advisors and they're seeing that the letters are actually mentioning other clients' projects because of the lack of potential training with the with the hmrc advisors that are picking these up so
0: you say that is fairly alarming for clients when they when they do get these letters i mean can you tell me a little bit more about whose responsibility it is for a claim that's submitted and, and what's the advisor's role in all of this
1: I think there's definitely an element of responsibility that needs to remain, well, a great responsibility that needs to remain with the director that's actually putting in the claim, because ultimately these are for the companies that are that are doing the work. So although an advisor is engaged to do a service, what they're there to do is actually assist them in making the claim in the right format and to make sure that the costs are qualifying and, and that the projects are qualifying. But ultimately, the directors are the only people that know genuinely what's happening within the business So they need to be responsible for the percentages of time that they're claiming for the project information and making sure that they aren't pushing those boundaries because there's no way for an advisor to genuinely know the inside and out of a a business to that level of detail. There needs to be a shift, really, back onto the client itself to understand the implications of getting this wrong and the fact that they will have to potentially justify this at a later date. It's not as simple anymore as just to submit it and it's gone and it's, it's processed there is this greater risk that it will be looked at. So then there might need to be that additional information.
2: Do you have many claims investigated, Gina? Is it necessarily, you know, are are claims that are investigated always, you know, about poor report or... A risk or do they, is there random checks? How does that all work?
1: So the ones we've seen recently I'd say we've only mm. got kind of two or three at the moment um, so I think in the scheme of things that's quite small on the, but on the basis of the number that we see. Well two or three checks? checks yeah essentially yeah so right. um based on the number that, that are filed I don't think that's actually too many mm. and they're sort of ones that because I've joined a Ballard's in May last year. Some of them are sort of pre-my time, so I'm, I'm defending and looking at those at the moment. And really, I think they are blanket. So I think the only focus at the moment is that they are focusing around the software element of claims. So because technology mm. is moving so quickly, what might have qualified last year might not now. So the software side is definitely taking a bit of a hit on that front. And actually, I think all three of us are, are software-based, so the rest of the industries mm. aren't
0: aren't seeing the effect as much at the moment and, and tell me Gina you, you I'm curious to know you talk about advisors in here and I know sometimes the boutique firms get involved and, and, and work with advisors do HMRC understand where the claim's coming from and do they attribute any any weight to a particular firm submitting a claim or not
1: so I think historically there will be less information about that available. My practice has always been to have the company logo on the report so that's that's always been very clear where it's coming from and also just the the actual sort of format of it contains the correct information and it that has had a very good success rate. So that's normal practice for us really, but for other firms I think a new rule that's coming in from the 1st of April is something they'll have to implement which is actually putting their agent name on the report itself so If they haven't been already, this is an actual rule from 1st of April. So there's two rules to that. There's the the name senior officer of the company itself claiming has to go on the report and the agent that's been advising. So the idea behind that, I think, will be that if they're seeing quite a lot from a certain agent that are being declined, then that agent will become under greater scrutiny as a whole. That's, yeah, that's our sort of assumption on that.
0: Interesting. Say someone who's listening has a a company which may or may not be doing R and D and they are approached by a firm with suggestions that there is a big claim there. What what would your advice be to that to that company?
1: So I think I'd be wary of a couple of things really. If there's a an agent that's sort of saying to you really easily that they'd be able to increase a claim without any additional information, then that in itself would be would be worrying to me because, you know, I could sit here quite easily and, and increase anybody's claim if I just up somebody's percentages of time spent or a percentage for a cost. So and it's very easy for people to do that, but actually understanding the business and, and getting into the detail of the projects is key. So if, if somebody sat there just sort of sending out a generic email, like I mentioned earlier, off the back of a set of accounts alone, then that to me would be worrying. And so I think they need to make sure that they sort of check the credentials of a business I wouldn't always rely on them having a professional website. That looks great because actually some of the advisors we've seen that are doing this um, badly have a professional website. They look great. They look like a legitimate business. So that's not always a telltale sign of that, really. I'd also recommend really that they look for an ICAW registered firm as well, because they've they've got to be bound by certain rules around that.
2: An ICAW, Gina, just to be clear, Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. Um, So that's the the body that oversees chartered accountants and chartered accountancy uh, globally. Yeah, Yeah, that's
1: correct. Yeah, yeah, I think that you've got a further level of confidence there that you know that they're going to be bound by those rules and monitored by that.
0: Okay, so somebody's got a potential claim. They've they've done the they've done the initial work and it looks like there is a viable claim. What what are the sort of top tips you have for for ensuring you you get that R&D claim through with a, with as little fuss as possible?
1: So I think it comes down to the level of quality information that you retain as part of your record keeping throughout the year. So, you know, with the best will in the world, if somebody's new to the scheme, then basically you're looking retrospectively. So, historically you might not have that level of information so I think it's very important that once you've sort of got yourself up to date that you learn from the information that you've had to capture and and look back and and find so some of the things I would always suggest to a client is that they set quarterly reminders so within their business they actually get the team together that are involved in the R&D and actually write down some of the key issues that they've, they've had along the way of the projects that they're undertaking so that it's not that full year's worth of look back when you get to the year end ideally timesheets would be great it's not a strict rule that they have to have them but I think it just helps if they can have that justification there and in terms of yeah it's it's the quality R&D report at the end ultimately so whilst it might be slightly frustrating you get additional questions or asked to provide more detail it's it's that type of information that we need to be providing from the outset to try and avoid the additional questions really.
2: Top tip sounds like talk to your accountant and be wary of third-party boutiques. And you know, I just want to sort of, you know, correct myself on that. There are some fantastic boutiques out there and firms. That, by boutique, you know, just to clarify, I suppose what we mean firms that are just solely offering an R and D rather than a full offering accountancy practice. And there's some great ones out there. And, you know, uh, and it's not all doom and gloom. I suppose what the message is saying is just be careful and talk to your accountant in the first instance. Is that is that fair to say, Gina?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, like you said, there are some boutiques out there that are doing a very good job and maintaining Mm. a certain standard. But it really is a case of having a chat with your accountant Um, yesterday that that was sort of approached by somebody off the back of a webinar, was given this generic email, and luckily they have turned around and spoken to their accountant, who's then referred it to us, So because they know that, that that we work well in this space. So, yeah, it, it really is just taking some, uh, taking a sensible view about the information that you're being provided and think, does this look legitimate and really yeah, too good to be true? Gina,
0: thank you. A, a, a sort of note of caution there, but obviously still a, a massive opportunity for many Many SMEs. I would like to just ask you one thing here. Also, could we have a recommendation for something? Could we have a maybe a film or a TV show or a book or an app or something just to uh, get people thinking?
1: I think one of the the programs I've watched recently and quite enjoyed was um is a program on Netflix and it's called Snowflake Mountain and really it's just about a few people that get well they think they're going to some fancy holiday resort when in reality they get dropped off in the middle of nowhere sort of in the wilderness and and all their technology is taken off them their makeup you know all the, all the things that they think they desperately need to to survive and I think yeah I think it really just highlights the the importance of getting away from technology you know we, we have to embrace it we understand that but there has to be this sort of cut-off point where we just enjoy being around each other and being with friends and family and that that side of it and it, it really just helps sort of you understand that um it's not the be all and end all and the, you do need that cut off with with that and it helps build relationships between these people that ordinarily would probably never even spend time together um, and it helps them develop as individuals so yeah i definitely recommend mm. watching it it's particularly sounds good when they they decide to blow up all of their mm. all of their belongings in a suitcase <laughs> and they think that the world's ended.
0: <laughs> Not the greatest recommendation for a podcast though. <laughs> no, no, this is true. You've got nothing to listen to on, but yeah, that sounds good. I might look it up.
2: Mm. <laughs> we did uh, just a shameless plug, we we did a different podcast for the other day which is available uh, on the, the channel with Dr Dan Reardon, who is a um digital well being entrepreneur and uh, yeah it's fascinating about his his thoughts on tech and interaction and and well-being and also you know, on the flip side you know how to use digital and technology in personal and business spaces to better your personal well-being as well so if you haven't listened to that check that out because that's a really interesting podcast as well
0: gina thank you If you want to get hold of Gina, please Google us, Ballard's LLP, or you can contact Gina directly on gina.gardner at ballardsllp.com. Steve, thank you for your input as well. And hopefully you enjoyed this podcast and we will catch us next time on Sound Advice from Ballards.
2: Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Gina. Thank you. Cheers, guys.